Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Well, about a week ago, Ian Basson, who's the director of the Protect Democracy um, organization, uh, he was associate uh, White House counsel during the Obama administration, wrote a piece for the Bulwark arguing that democracy cannot survive the fracturing of the Democratic coalition when anti-authoritarian coalitions splinter, the authoritarians take over. Well, no kidding. That is a warning that uh, seems very, very timely. So thanks for coming on the podcast today, Ian. It's good to be back, Charlie. Um, sometimes I feel like you're screaming into the wind. Except, except <laughs> that I think that we have some control over the winds, right? Um, you know, I, I actually yeah, was reflecting, yeah. I was reflecting recently on the state of our democracy and how it can feel at moments dire. And, and I think it is. I think we're in a dire moment. But um, I think it's a little bit like the wildfires out west, which is sometimes the winds blow in a direction that kind of make the firefighters unable to do what they're supposed to do. Um, but the winds change. And what we need to be doing right now is making sure that the firefighting team is well equipped to fight the fire engulfing our democracy. And I actually, on that front, I'm pretty optimistic that there is a, a growing movement around this country that is trying to reassert the foundational principles of American democracy and stand up for them. And you know, the piece that you referenced was was my attempt to say, let's make that movement as broad as possible and get everyone together as part of the same firefighting team to put out this fire so that when the winds shift, you know, we're in a position for for democracy ultimately to, to prevail and survive. Well, I agree. I agree with you. And I want to double back on that in just a, just a moment. Um, but you mentioned the, the, the state of democracy being dire. It, it's dire at the national level, but also at uh, the local level. And I wanted to get your take on all of this. Uh, strong sort of Tea Party vibes going on um, as activists or organize at the local level, uh, including school board meetings. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on local election officials, which we've we've read about. But also what's been happening in local school board meetings all around the country. I have to tell you, it's sort of like got a little bit of 2009 vibes, but it is definitely turning ugly. The reason I said, you know, democracy in dire shape, it's turning ugly because what's happening is not just petitioning for the rest of grievances, it is threats. And this has gone viral. It is a, a video from a Brevard, Florida school board member named Jennifer Jenkins. And she's talking about the threats and intimidation that she and her family and her neighbors have been subjected to this year. And it's and it's worth a listen. This is this is again a local school board member, Jennifer Jenkins, talking about what it's like to be a school board member in the current political climate. I am not opposed to people practicing their First Amendment rights, even when it's outside of my home on a, on a public property. I'm not. Um, I think it's a silly method. I think it's ineffective. It doesn't move me or motivate me in any way. Um, but I'm not opposed to it. Um, what I reject is this effort to create fear and division in the community that leads to credible threats of violence against me and my family. And there's a lot of things that I haven't shared with all of you up here. Um, I've tried not to talk about this stuff publicly. And when you guys brought this up today in the workshop, um, I, felt, I felt off guard and frustrated because then it became something on our agenda that I couldn't express to you why I was against it any longer because now it has to be in the sunshine. Um, I don't reject people coming here and speaking their voice. They, they do it all the time. We, we, don't, we don't stop them from doing that. I don't reject them standing outside my home. Um, I reject them following me around in a car, following my car around. I reject them saying that they're coming for me, that, they're, that I need to beg for mercy. I reject that 
when they are using their First Amendment rights on public property, they're also going behind my home and brandishing their weapons to my neighbors, that they're making false DCF claims against me to my daughter, that I have to take a DCF investigator to her playdate to go underneath her clothing and check for burn marks. That's what I'm against, which is a credible threat and calculated. Okay, so wow, uh, Ian, we're not we're not just talking about people exercising their First Amendment rights. We are at a really ugly moment where political violence, I think, has become a real prospect uh, as as an alternative to uh, normal democratic give and take. Yeah, it's a it's a very scary moment, and I think you know it's interesting because that's such a very local, acute um, manifestation of a problem that I actually think is far bigger, broader, and let's zoom out for a minute. And here's one way of thinking about it. Um, I think we're, we're experiencing sort of the equivalent right now of a a societal volcano. (laughs) And here, here's what I mean by that. There are just like with a volcano, there are some tectonic plates at sort of the base level of, of sort of the earth's surface that are shifting around right now at this sort of stage in the early 21st century. You have just massive changes in labor markets around the world that are the result of globalization, that are a result of new information economies. Um, you have changes in climate that are driving migration patterns, creating conflict and war. You saw, you know, within the last decade, so many people either leaving the war in Syria and moving into Europe or getting on rafts from North Africa to try to find places that, you know, have more stable uh, food supplies or societies. Um, You see that happening in Central America uh, with people moving here. You have all sorts of disruptions that are happening at the most basic kind of foundational level of society. And, And just like with the Earth's surface, when that happens, it stirs up some of the mm-hmm. lava from the Earth's core that goes into the cone of the volcano. And if that was all that was happening, maybe that lava would sort of stay in the base of the volcano. But then I think at the middle level of the volcano, you have what you might think of as accelerants, right? Mm-hmm. Things that kind of take that lava and heat it up further. And I'm talking about things like social media, right? Just look at what's been in the news this week about the impact that Facebook has on kind of stoking our kind of are lesser angels as as human beings. Mm. You think about the fact that countries like Russia or or China are actually deliberately trying to undermine democratic societies and trying to stir up uh, problems in democratic societies, stir up conflict. I think you have democratic distortions in the American system, right? Some of the ways in which our our 240 some odd year old democracy was not designed for the modern era and is incentivizing through things like the primary system, bad behavior, frankly, right now on the part of, of you know, Kevin McCarthy's party and Donald Trump's party. And those things rise the lava further up to the top of the volcano. And there it might stay uh, if the checks and balances held. But we've been in a, in a moment, right, over the last couple of years where so many of those institutional checks are just blowing away, right? You have Congress sort of failing to do its job. You have checks on the executive failing to hold. And you have traditional gatekeepers, be they in the parties or the media failing to hold. And when that happens, the lava flows out the top. And I think wow. that 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 sort of recording from Bavard County, that's the lava. That's the lava flowing out the top. You are the master of metaphors today. I mean, you 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 woke up with the metaphors. I mean, you have the you have the wildfires, the volcano, and and they all seem appropriate. Okay, so before we get into all of this, since I have you on, um, let's just define our terms a little bit because I, I agree. I I th- I think that um, many of our constitutional norms face an existential challenge. I do think that there's a, that uh, democracy is on the bubble, but I wanted to ask you this: 
So can you define for me democracy? And, and I, I don't mean to be too wonky here, but every time we bring it up, people say we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Do we mean liberal constitutional order? Do we mean Republican values? What do we mean when you talk about when you're the director of Protect Democracy, what are you protecting? Yeah. So I think that when we talk about democracy um, casually these days, what we really mean is liberal democracy. And I, I mean that not in the American sense that liberals are on the left and conservatives are on the right. I mean that in sort of the classic sense of, of uh, liberalism from, from John Stuart Mill and, and John Locke and that tradition. And what liberal democracy includes are a couple of crucial elements. One is that the will of the majority of the people um, are the ultimate sort of sovereign voice, that the people are the sovereign, not some other entity, you know, like a king or a monarch or an oligarchy, but the people are ultimately sovereign. And the people set the direction for the government generally through the will of the majority. But that, and that's sort of the democracy component of it. The liberal component of it means that there are some other pieces, such as the rule of law right? The separation of powers and a system of checks and balances and the protection of individual rights so that you don't have, for example, the tyranny of the majority where the majority can deprive the minority of certain foundational rights. Now, where do you find those foundational rights typically in a, in a liberal democratic system? In some sort of founding document like our constitution, right? So liberal democracy is a form of government that combines those elements of rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances, individual rights, and then within a system of law, the will of the majority dictates, you know, sort of how the society is governed. And I think that there's been, you know, an interesting discussion in recent years about whether what is really being challenged these days is the liberal component of liberal mm -hmm. democracy, right? The rule of law component, right. separation of power, or the democratic component, right? The sort of the popular will. And I've actually argued that it is in many ways the democratic component mm -hmm. that is being challenged. That doesn't mean that there aren't pressures, and we've seen them obviously during the Trump administration on things like the rule of law and the separation of powers. But, but fundamentally, we are at, right now at a moment in society where there are pretty broad majorities for policies, for... Uh, parties for preferences, elected officials that are not being translated into governing policy or even sort of governing sets of officials because of ways in which our system does have a bunch of, of anti-democratic, counter-democratic uh, features in it, some of which were there by design, some of which have gotten exacerbated by the way that our country has evolved over the last, and some of which that are being presently taken advantage of in ways that really counteract the spirit of democracy by, at least right now, the sort of Trumpist Republican Party. And that's a challenge to the Democratic side. And the danger, of course, is that if a minoritarian faction is able to put itself in power, it then will begin to erode the liberalism side. And that's what yeah. you've seen in places like Poland and Hungary. Okay, so let's talk about authoritarianism. Because yeah. a lot of people on the right will say that they are the party of freedom, individual rights, don't tread on me. So how do you define authoritarianism and, and what kind of authoritarianism are you concerned about from the right? Well, in some ways, authoritarianism is, is sort of the flip side of the coin of liberal democracy in that it is, it is the opposite in a couple of ways, right? It is a system that, for example, centralizes power in the hands of an entity, normally sort of the chief executive officer or the president or the head of state or one of them, and, and has a much 
less robust um, to sometimes not even existent system of checks and balances or protection for individual rights or adherence to the rule of law. So in, in a ways, it's, it's opposite of that sort of liberalism side. And in other ways, it's, opposite, it's an opposite to the democratic part of liberal democracy, because typically what the modern authoritarians do is they erode all of the systems of checks and balances and rule of law and individual rights that allow there to be free and fair elections that allow the popular will of the public to channel itself into what should who should be governing and what should sort of the governing agenda be. And so what you have in the modern era are these autocrats in places like Venezuela or Hungary or Poland or Turkey that have not abolished democracy outright the way that their mm-hmm. predecessors mm-hmm. in the 20th century did, right? If you go back to the 20th century, you get those sorts of illiberal autocratic leaders. They just pass an enabling act, abolish democracy, create a one-party dictatorship. That's not what happens in the 21st century. The Harvard scholar Stephen Levitsky coined a phrase uh, earlier in the century for this new hybrid regime. He calls them competitive autocracies. And what they are is governing systems in which a pretty much all-powerful autocrat governs but maintains many of the sort of facades of democracy. So if you think about it, in recent years, Vladimir Putin has held elections and purportedly won, right? Uh, Al-Sisi in Egypt has held elections and purportedly won. Uh, Orban has held elections and purportedly won. Maduro in Venezuela. But none of those elections were free and fair. In a lot of cases, the outcome of those elections was preordained and understood by everybody. Those that that new form of system, that competitive autocratic system, is on the rise around the world. And I think you know we are at a moment in the United States where if we're not careful and we don't do certain things, we're in danger of going down the same road as some of those other countries, notwithstanding our our pretty you know sort of unique uh, and longstanding democratic traditions. Okay, so one 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 more wonky uh, definition since we've gone through democracy. Okay, so there are people who are listening who might think, well. I'm confused. Shouldn't populism be the same thing as democratic? And can you be a populist authoritarianism? So what is populism and why is it not the same thing as liberal democracy? Well, I think populism would be a form of government that says, if you look at that sort of pairing of words, liberal democracy, that the democracy side of it is far and away the dominant one. And when it conflicts with the liberalism side of it, when it conflicts with the rule of law, when it conflicts with checks and balances, then those aspects, those institutions, rule of law, checks and balances, should should fall away, right? Because the will of the people is so paramount that they can override individual rights. They can override the rule of law. They can override checks and balances. That's not the system of government that we that the founders established in the United States, right? The founders were very clear that they were giving sovereignty to the people, that they that they did believe in the majority will generally dictating who should be elected. And we can get into sort of the nuances of how the original Senate was created mm-hmm. and things like that, but in, in broad terms, um, it, but that there would be sort of checks on it. And I think populism in the current context says, look, if this is what the will of the people is, then all those other things fade away. And right. I think what you see in leaders like Donald Trump and in, in leaders like Maduro or Orban or Putin is they have this sense that I alone can fix it Mm -hmm. in part because I am the sole legitimate representative of the people, of the Volk, 
right? And anything that stands in the way of me carrying out the will of the people, mind you, in 2016, the will of the people, according to Donald Trump, did not include those three or four million brown people that he said voted illegally. And but for them, you know, he had a mandate to govern. He won. He won the popular vote, right? Um, he represents the real Americans, the real people. You hear Orban, the real Hungarians, or the Law and Justice Party in Poland, the real Poles, and their will is supreme, and everything else must fall away. And that is not the form of government our founders. Um, Invented. And ironically, you, you know, you, you said before, Charlie, that often when someone says democracy, the retort typically, you know, from the mm-hmm. right is we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Well, the irony here is that same group that, that normally says that are the ones right now on the side of kind of populism, do away with the checks and balances, sort of even more. That, that is not a Republican cry, a cry for sort of representation where those who are elected have certain obligations and oath of office and must sort of make decisions free of, you know, sort of what the people who sent them there wanted because, you know, they're there to represent those people and, and embody sort of wisdom. It's actually the, the the cry of populism is completely opposite of anything. It embraces the, the democracy side, not the um, not the republicanism side, but it ignores entirely uh, the institutions of liberalism that our founders baked into our constitution. Okay, so let's let's talk about your argument about the necessity of the democratic coalition and the the dangers of fracturing that coalition. But let's let's take a quick break here. If you're a fan of this podcast or any of our other podcasts here at The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy our newest edition. It's called The Focus Group, and it's hosted by our own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts, but now she's actually sharing real audio from the participants. It's a great show, and I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you consume podcasts. Okay, we are back with Ian Basson, who is the founder and director of Protect Democracy. So let's talk about your argument um, that that you have to have a pro-democracy coalition that will include Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and, and you base that on recent history, because we actually have a lot of a track record of how democracy is, uh, how it dies. And you, you're really arguing that a fractured opposition opens the path for an aspiring autocrat to attain power. So we, we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? Yeah. And in fact, not just in sort of recent years, um, but actually, if you go back to the early 20th century, you know, the authors of How Democracies Die, I mentioned one of them before Steve Levitsky and the other Daniel Ziblatt, include in that book a... Uh, a chapter that looks at what was happening in Europe in the interwar years. And it uses four case studies, Belgium, Finland, Italy, and Germany. And it makes the point that in all of those countries, there were anti-democratic, illiberal, extremist far-right parties that were gaining traction. Um, In some ways, you go back to my volcano analogy, because you had sort of similar volcanic effects going on in Europe at the time. Then it was the sort of aftermath of the Industrial Revolution rather than the Information Revolution. But you had these sort of big social shifts that were causing upheavals. And those upheavals then, like today, produced some extremism in politics. And so you had these kind of rising far-right parties in all of those countries. Now, what happened in Belgium and Finland? Well, in Belgium and Finland, the mainstream center-right party recognized that the extremist far-right party was a threat to those countries' fundamental forms of government. And so the center-right party formed a coalition with their traditional opponents on the left 
to mm-hmm. keep that extremist far-right party out of mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. because they, they viewed them as a threat to the very system of government they wanted to preserve. And so they put aside their differences with the center left and they united to block those parties from rising and they were successful. Now, of course, in Italy and Germany, what happened? Well, in Italy, King Emmanuel looked at the sort of rising popular Mussolini fascist movement and decided that he should try to co-opt it and ride it and that they could be contained uh, even if the center-right was able to sort of form a coalition with them and ride them to power. And of course, we know that von Papen made the same calculation in Mm -hmm. Germany. Look at what happened in those countries, right? Um, They were not able to contain those extremists on the far right by trying to co-opt their energy and bring them into the right side coalition, tragically so. If we look at the United States over the last couple of years, which do we look more like? You know, do, do we look more like the Belgium-Finland model and what the mainstream Republican Party has done, or do we look more like the Italian-German model? So you argue that the 10 Republicans who voted to convict uh, Trump in the second impeachment trial should, should make common cause with Democrats, at least at least on issues of democracy itself. I, I completely agree with you, obviously. Why has that not happened so far? This This does seem to be this moment which there would be a you know center right center left uh coalition about democracy on that that upward access of, of being in favor of liberal constitutionalism the rule of law you did have 10 republicans that voted to remove donald trump from office to disqualify him you know permanently and yet we're not we're not seeing that coalition at the moment are we or am i being too no. pessimistic no, we're not. Um, we're not seeing it uh, quite quite dangerously. So I think there's two. I have two theories, and, and uh, I welcome others. But I have two yep. theories that, that combine for why that might be happening. The first is I've talked to uh, Republican legislators over the last couple of years, and one thing that I'm struck by the ones that I that I've spoken with is they seem to recognize that Trump is an embarrassment. They seem to think that he is corrupt and immoral. Um, they think he's unfit, uh, capable, incompetent, all of those things. They don't seem to think he's dangerous. Yeah, um, that, that is the line that I've noticed in my conversations. And in part, they find it hard to believe that this sort of kooky right-wing extremist sort of nutty person could actually pose a threat to the Republic. And I think there's something in human psychology going on in which we are less afraid, uh, generally, as people, of those that we are more familiar with and think we understand than we are of those that we're less familiar with and, and understand less well. And so, for example, if you've been in, um, if you've been in rooms on the right and there's been for years that sort of kind of quacky extremist gadfly who's saying sort of ridiculous extremist things, you understand that person. You think that person's not dangerous. They're just a quack and we sort of ignore them. And the same thing can happen on the left. But when all of a sudden you're confronted with that extremist on the opposite side of the political spectrum from you, who has not been in those rooms with you, who you don't understand, who you're less familiar with, you're more afraid of it. And so you see people on the center right being terrified of some of the people on the far left. Um, but not nearly as afraid of the people on on the far right. And so I think there's some degree of that going on where there's just a lack of of real fear of those people. The other thing that I think is happening is a bit of a prisoner's dilemma problem among Republicans in Congress. And, And what I mean by that is this. Every time a singular Republican in Congress had a 
pokes his or her head, typically his, his head out of the foxhole um, to take on Donald Trump, uh, you know, Trump blows their head off, right? Whether that's Jeff Flake or whether that's Bob Corker or whether that's Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, for all the bravery of, of some of those people in standing up, the minute they kind of go solo, they're easy to pick off. What you really need is you need a group that's so united uh, and broad that it's very hard for Trump to actually critical mass. There's a critical mass. Yeah, yeah. Here's the problem, though. How do you organize that critical mass? One, first off, if people aren't afraid enough, they're not going to take the risk and do it. But two, anyone who attempts to organize it, if word gets out that they're attempting to organize it before they're able to assemble it and get it into place to actually be useful and forceful and effective, Trump and his forces will take out that organizer. So they're all afraid to be that organizer. Um, that is my generous way of kind of explaining yeah, so why I right. haven't been able to organize it. Um, there, but someone has to be willing, and, and this is the other, maybe the third reason is, I think we're at a moment of, of weak leaders uh, at this moment when we need strong leaders. And right now we're, we're not seeing strong leaders on the right the way that we need them to, to stand up for our republic. Well, and I think an indication of how weak these leaders are is that they are afraid to tell their own supporters the truth. A strong leader would at least be able to push back against some of this, but you saw this with Steve Scalise over the weekend. So I have here a, a New York Times article from uh, earlier this month where you were quoted as saying that a loss uh, in any one of the uh, 2022 races for governor in Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania could be an existential threat because the governor's could have an outsized role in the election process and, you know, pretend, you know, potentially interfere or o overrule a narrow Democratic win in 2024. Um, that would have seen seemed far fetched a year ago today, but no longer seems far fetched, does it? Unfortunately not. I mean, if we if we haven't realized by now how dead set Donald Trump is on hold, seizing and holding power regardless of whether he is able to win enough votes, uh, then, then perhaps we're not fit to, to self-govern because the evidence is so glaring at this point. And so the reason I said that is because if you look back at 2020, there was a, a clear sort of plan that Trump had, whether he had it organized enough in his mind or not, I can't say. Um, maybe it was just by instinct, but how he was going to hold power regardless of who the people voted for. And it was this. Step one was try to suppress actual votes, make it harder for people to vote, limit drop boxes, or during a pandemic, you know, sort of try to deny the ability to vote by mail, but just make it harder for people to vote. That was step one. Step two was declare victory the night of the election, regardless of what the results were, and declare that all of those mail ballots that were being counted still the night of the election the morning after were somehow fraudulent and should not be counted. Go with the election night results, as, as Trump said in both 2018 and 2020, and try to win that narrative in the public consciousness that these late votes were illegitimate and shouldn't count. Step three, barrage the courts with lawsuits that were designed to really do two things. One, um, amplify those claims of fraud and convince people that there was something to those claims of fraud and, and also delay certification, right? Create litigation that would sort of draw out the process uh, and hold off states from being able to certify an actual winner. So that step four, once states are sort of delayed in certification and the safe harbor date under the Electoral Count Act, that's the date by which yeah. under federal law, states are supposed to send their slate of electors into the Electoral College. When that date came, I think it was December 8th last year, mm -hmm. 
persuade the state legislatures that were Republican-controlled in key states, including those three, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, to, to send in electors for Trump. And, and the rationale would have been, look, we don't know for sure who won yet because it's all tied up in court and there are, there's all this apparent fraud and controversy. And so if we don't send in a slate of electors for the state of Wisconsin, I'll pick that one, Charlie, for you, on the state of Wisconsin, then the whole state might be disenfranchised. So we better just send in a placeholder slate. And since since it appeared that you know Trump may have won, we'll, we'll send in the Trump electors. We could always change it later on. And then, of course, step five, when Congress meets on January 6th, get them to accept that alternate slate of electors, ideally by procedure, Vice President Pence, please, or if not by force, um, we'd like to introduce you to the mob outside of the building. Um, and that was the plan, right? And that plan came remarkably close, uh, as we've now learned just how close we were that had Vice President Pence done something slightly yeah, different, who knows how that plays out. And so right now, what Trump and his allies, and when I say allies, at this point, I mean the bulk of the Republican Party, what they are doing is they are engaged in a very deliberate effort to reverse engineer each of those steps so that next time it succeeds where in 2020 it failed. So step one on, on making it hard for people to vote, you're seeing measures in uh, states around the country that are Republican trifecta controlled to make it harder than pe for people to vote. Step two on sort of claiming victory and that everything else is fraudulent, this big lie and these fake audits, they're designed to sort of sow further doubt so that people are more likely to believe fraud claims next time. Um, court battles, you're seeing uh, there are some bills in some states around the country that are trying to strip state courts of jurisdiction to hear cases over electoral issues. Or in Arizona, they stripped the Secretary of State of the power to litigate election, election cases. Step four on the state legislatures, you're seeing much more pressure being brought on state legislative leaders to be willing to sort of intervene next time. Robin Vos in, in Wisconsin, in that same story that yeah, I was quoting in the Times, said now he's not sure who won last time. So you're seeing movement among uh, those leaders. And of course, he, he knows. Of course, step five, he does know. Of, yeah, course, of course he knows. And so the reason this is all getting back to why yeah. those why those gubernatorial races are so important is because under the Electoral Count Act, as it currently exists, if competing slates of electors are sent to the Electoral College next time, um, the governor's slate is given preference if the Senate and House can't decide which slate is legitimate. And if the governors in those states are diehard loyalist Trump allies, and they are elected in part based on a commitment to supporting Trump's claims about how the election should go, there's a real danger that they will be able to send in and certify uh, whatever slate they prefer, or if a Democrat has clearly won, sort of refuse to certify it because they are bought into specious claims of fraud. So, so that's why those races strike me as so critical for the preservation of, of democracy. Frankly. But, but I have been reliably informed that the vice president Kamala Harris would be able to uh, count or not count whatever votes she, she wants. I mean, you don't want to talk about a mess. I just, I mean, you know, we, we, we throw on terms like constitutional crisis uh, too lightly, but I mean, that could certainly be one of them. Um, if all this happens now, by the way, I'm trying to remember whether you and I spoke after the election, because uh, I remember, you know, having a conversation with somebody about what would the Wisconsin Republican legislature do um, about the if there was a challenge to it. And, and at that point, I was reasonably confident that that no, you know, that they they may be you know conservative Republicans, but they wouldn't go along with the big lie. Um, and they, they didn't really. But 
I could not say in advance now, looking ahead with what's going on, the trajectory that the Republicans in Wisconsin would not um, mess with the election and that a Republican governor, and I think it's very possible to have a Republican governor after next year, uh, might not go along with it. So I, I, do, I don't think these are far-fetched at all. All right. So, Ian, one of the big questions that I get asked all the time, and I admit that it's somewhat frustrating, uh, is, well, what do we do about it? How do we fix those things? Now, you have been, your organization, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is your organization has been doing a lot of work on all this, and you've come up with a list of critical reforms that, you know, people ought to to support. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, whether or not Democrats will ever get around to passing um, election reform uh, legislation. But but what what are some of the, just the, the critical reforms that we need. I mean, you've talked about, you know, mandating paper ballots to preserve voting results, you know, requiring chains of custody for the ballots. What what else is necessary? Well, I, I think we need both a a short-term strategy to protect the upcoming elections in 22 and 24. And I'll talk about what that means. We need a medium-term strategy of strengthening the guardrails of our democracy, strengthening democratic institutions so that if a illiberally inclined leader is elected again in the future, we have stronger institutions to contain, as the founders envisioned, uh, that person's lesser instincts. And then we need a longer term strategy that gets at what are all of the incentives in our electoral and political system that are driving this amplification of, of an authoritarian kind of theme in our politics? And what are all of the, the sort of social cultural interventions that we might need to help, you know, repair the social fabric that as, as that Brevard County audio exhibits is so, so broken and torn right now. So on the first of those, the short term, look, there's federal legislation that would go a long way towards ameliorating some of these dangers that we're seeing in the state. So first, there's the Freedom to Vote Act, which is the bill that now all Democrats, including Joe Manchin, are on board with, that would address not just these attempts to make it harder for people to vote, but this new trend of bills that we're seeing in Republican-controlled states that have been dubbed either election subversion or election corruption that, as you alluded to, kind of change the way votes are counted or winners are certified or who administers elections to make them more hyper-partisan officials. There's a whole title, Title III, in the Freedom to Vote Act that, uh, that mitigates some of those dangers. So that bill needs to be passed. And frankly, unfortunately right now, it needs to be passed on solely party line support. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that after the Civil War, the 14th and 15th Amendments were passed with only Republican support because the Democratic Party at the time was beholden to the anti-democratic, you know, racist forces of the South at the time. And they refused to support the 14th and 15th Amendment. But the Republican Party at the time understood that if the union was to survive, and a liberal democratic form of government was to survive, that we had to have the 14th and 15th Amendments. It was more important, and they did it on a party line vote. And we are in a moment like that, where this time it's the Democratic Party that has to be willing to do that. And whatever changes to Senate procedure are necessary, they need to do that because the Republicans are, have shown that they will not support that bill. The other piece of federal legislation, I referenced earlier the Electoral Count Act um, that, that we need, is we need a reform to the Electoral Count Act. It has always been a, a sort of ticking time bomb because of how poorly it is crafted and all of the shenanigans that it allows people like Josh Hawley or, or Ted Cruz to engage in like they did last January 6th. We need a reform to the Electoral Count Act. I and could, then, more. 
Yeah, and then and then around the country in the states, you know, we need campaigns in the states that are um, that that are directed at making sure that anyone elected um, is committed to the principles of liberal democracy and is not sort of expressed their undying total fealty to to the aspiring autocrat in Mar-a-Lago. Um, and that all of the key civic institutions in the states, and this happened a little bit in Georgia and Texas, where you had business leaders come out and really actually help water down some of the, the worst aspects of the legislate the anti-democratic legislation that was introduced in Georgia and Texas. We need that in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania going forward. Um, so that that's part of, and there's more pieces to it, but that's part of the sort of short-term effort we need. And we can talk more if you want about some of the medium uh, and long Well, let's, let, let's go back to the big picture, though, of, of the need to have the United Opposition um, and, and the dangers of a fractured opposition. Because this is what you wrote, because you addressed yourself to what's going on with Democrats in Congress, I thought pretty directly. Uh, you said this is a precept, the, the need for um, not fracturing. This is a precept that America's Democratic coalition ought to have top of mind uh, this week. This was a couple of weeks ago. Especially those parts of the coalition threatening to derail the legislation House and Senate leaders plan to bring to the floor. Because while each wing of the governing coalition may feel the aspects of the policies they prefer are good for and even necessary for democracy, if they cannot reach a deal, not only will they not deliver on any of those policies, but this failure will be a boon to the authoritarian forces waiting to regain power. There are practical political reasons why the failure to pass either of the bills would help the anti-democratic forces. The lack of legislative accomplishment is likely to hurt Democrats in 2022, recent uh, weakened President Biden in 2024. But more important may be the psychological component. If Democrats cannot govern, even with the presidency and majorities in both houses, then it would demonstrate to the American people that democracy may not be workable in our current moment. And it's in situations like that when a strong man who promises that I alone can fix it becomes more attractive. So you fired a shot across the bow of the Democrats who are squabbling in Congress that this would be a really bad time for them to implode, wouldn't it? And this is based on advice that we received from people who fought autocrats in other countries in recent years. So at the beginning of the piece, I make reference to a Polish opposition MP who attended a event that we put on with the group Stand Up Republic um, mm -hmm. in 2017, a summit for democracy, where at the end of the summit, we had a panel of opposition leaders from Russia, Poland, Egypt, to give us as Americans advice on dealing with an autocrat because one had just been elected here. And um, the Polish MP Agnieszka Pomaska said this in response to a question of, what is the most important piece of advice you have for Americans right now facing the prospect of an autocrat in office? And she said this, don't let the opposition fracture. Hmm. That is what happened in Poland that allowed the Law and Justice Party to rise and take power. That is what happened in Hungary that allowed the Fidesz Party to repeatedly command supermajorities in the legislature, even while winning only pluralities in the popular vote. That is what happened in the 2016 Republican primary, when opposition to Trump actually was a majority for most of that primary, but it could not stay united, and he was able to continue gaining power with just plurality support. In a moment like the one we are in now, whatever policies any one of us prefer, prefers on the legislation of the day, 
however critically important it is. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I'm open about that. There's a lot of stuff I personally really like in, in the policies that are before the Congress. But at the end of the day, democracy has to take precedence because if we don't have a democracy, we will never be able to deliver the policies that people want and we will not have a free and open society. And so my plea to the Democratic coalition and also to the Republicans who believe in democracy is put democracy first, stay united to put democracy first because otherwise everything else is for naught. Well, and this is why we've said in the past that, that, that if you believe that this is an existential crisis for democracy, act like it, which is that you can't allow some of these other policy things to get in the way. So are they listening? Because right now, I'm, I mean, I'm, we're, we're taping this and I'm just seeing more headlines about uh, Democrats in disarray and how the divisions, you know, are not, are not being healed at, at the moment. I mean, do they fully understand the consequences of failure, not just, not just for their own political prospects, but as you put it, for the entire democratic experiment? Because I, I think this can't be emphasized too strongly, that if people basically figure none of this uh, democratic process is giving me what I want. Uh, then they will give up on it. I mean, that's kind of always been the 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 weak, you know, the weak link of you know, liberal democracy is that it's it's boring, it's it's time consuming, and sometimes you don't get everything you want. And the authoritarian can ride in on the white horse and promise you all the great and good and shiny things in the glorious future, right? I mean, so that's always been the challenge of liberal democracy. And, and I want, I think there's one thing that's worth noting, which is, and, and Ezra Klein details this really well in his book Why We're Polarized. This is a situation in which um, the filibuster right now is actually a real opponent and enemy of democracy in this way. By making it so that the majority cannot actually pass basic legislation and govern, but the minority is able to blame the majority for what the minority is actually thwarting, it confuses voters. It confuses the public. People don't know quite who to blame. Um, and that makes it very hard to actually self-govern, right? Because as we're seeing right now, um, even if the Republicans block, for example, a lifting of the debt ceiling, polls show that the public will blame Democrats. Well, that's exactly. not the way it's supposed to work. And so, you know, I think Klein makes a, a pretty compelling case that in, an, in, an, in a moment, an era of polarization, you want to at least allow the majority that's been elected to govern so that the people can decide whether they like it or not and either vote them out or, or re-vote them in. So, so that is a dynamic that's worth noting. That said, it's just not an excuse because it is the system we've got right now. And until Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema decide to change it, uh, which I hope they will, um, that's the system we've got. And in the system we've got, I think the Democrats need to be doing more to be putting democracy first, and that includes the administration of the White House. But here's it: since we've had a lot of darkness mm -hmm. on this yep. uh, on this podcast, Charlie, yep. here's a note of optimism. I, I think one thing about this country is we are often late to identify a problem and surge solutions and resources to it. But once we come around to realizing the problem, we actually are really good as a country at solving it. And so, I think one note of optimism here is. I wish we as a nation and the Democratic Party and the administration and the, the, the pro-democracy Republicans, I wish all those actors would have realized two, three years ago sort of the seriousness and severity of the problem in acting then. Um, but I do think people are starting to notice it now. I'm just noticing more in the mainstream media 
covering the fact that we are in the midst of a democracy crisis. I think you're seeing today, Adam Schiff has a book coming out and he's actually been among mm. the best at recognizing uh, the democracy crisis. Uh, he really deserves credit for being one of the prescient ones. Um, uh, but I think we are seeing a, albeit slightly late, growing recognition of the democracy crisis. And this is what gives me hope is even if we're late to the game, this country, once it knows there's a problem, tends to be pretty good at searching resources to, to solve it. I'm always desperate to end on a high note. So let's end there. Ian Basson, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again. <laughs>